it's going to be challenging, but it's going to change. Um, you have to come in knowing what's going on out there. I think uh, your greatest asset is your mind, uh, knowing what to do, knowing the rules, knowing the laws, knowing the policies, um, knowing the crooks and how the crooks operate, that, that thin blue line. Um, you've really got to get into that stuff. It, it's the greatest job in the world. Um, and I think we need we need leaders that are going to come back and, and bring that respect back to us. Uh, you know, the, the police officers nationwide, you have some that are really trying. Hey, welcome back to Hawaii Real, everybody. I'm your host, Eokeehu, and this episode is brought to you by the Native Hawaiian Chamber of Commerce. The Native Hawaiian Chamber of Commerce's mission is to malama Native Hawaiians in business and commerce through leadership, relationships, and connections to economic resources and opportunities. The Chamber's programs and events are designed to facilitate connections and promote business growth, professional and economic development, and sustainability. The Chamber's membership is open to individuals, nonprofit organizations, and businesses of all sizes. To learn more about the Chamber and how you can join, visit the website www.NativeHawaiianChamberOfCommerce.org. I also want to send a shout out to our beverage sponsor, Hawaiian Springs Water. So you got your uh, Hawaiian Springs Water right there, right? A little alcohol, alkali water going there. All right. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast on YouTube. We have a great channel there. We put up a bunch of the uh, videos and a bunch of these short videos, about two minutes, two and a half minutes. And if you're one of those awesome listeners on Amazon Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, where else are we on? Google Podcast. There's all these podcast platforms out there. Can you do us a favor? Can you leave a review or a five-star rating, whatever you think, and uh, tell us what we're doing right, tell us what we're doing wrong, and help this channel so, so much. Uh, again, thank you so, so much for watching and listening and tuning into this episode. Okay, and today I have an honored guest here, the former, what are you laughing for? Honored. <laughs> Former or retired? Retired. Retired. Retired Deputy Chief of Police of the Honolulu Police Department, John McCarthy. Thank you. Thanks for having Sir, me. Sir, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, we we were talking off camera about, oh, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about, it's like, okay, well, yeah, try to leave most of the politics and stuff out of it for, yeah. for this episode. And, and kind of get to um, a good history lesson, uh, at least for me and the audience, on what policing was like way back in the day because you were in the police department the home police department for over 45 years 45 years 45, i'm not even 45 years old Jeez. <laughs> you're the second one today to tell me that <laughs> but over the course of 45 years so much in society as a whole has changed it's and I, changed. yeah i think people forget that um policing wasn't always the way it was as it is right. today like right. Everybody talks about police reform, police reform. We need police reform. And I have to remind them that, no, we're in a constant state of police reform. Right. Like the police officers of 2021 are not even close to the same type of police officers that we had doing the type of work and the mentality and everything right. of like the 1980s. Right. Like things have changed. So how have things changed or what has been some of the drastic changes you've seen or how was things when you first got in the police department? You know, it's, it's really changed. I started in 1976 oh as my a God. cadet. Uh, yeah, and like you said, you weren't born, but uh, it was really, really different. Um, there was a pecking order, uh, very 
very rigid pecking order, somewhat rigid pecking order among who was who at what rank. And, you know, you, you paid a, it was an expected uh, respect to these people because they had been around longer. Mm-hmm. Um, policing was different because, I mean, people respected police as a whole back then. You never, you rarely got assaults on police officers. You rarely got back talking on that because, you know, we knew people's parents. We knew, everybody knew somebody. And and law enforcement was just respected so much more back then. It was, it was a different form of policing. Just to give you an idea, when I was, uh, I graduated my recruit class in 1977. And um, the white cars that we drove after graduating, uh, we actually, it, it, let, me, let me take you back a little bit more. Did you we, have to change the horseshoes? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people say that. Um, you know, w- when we graduated, just to give you, you know, we had talked about the history, but yeah, it's very rich in history because we gra- I graduated in June of 1977. Mm-hmm. And what uh, we did was uh, they gave us a day off and then you reported to work the next day. You worked from 6 in the evening to 2 in the morning and you walked either downtown Honolulu or Waikiki. And it was night and day. Uh, downtown isn't anything what it looked like today, but mm-hmm. uh, you had strip bars. There was a live sex act bar, uh, so th- there were multiple bars. I mean, a live sex act, like there was a li- live like Tijuana kind live sex act. Um, and you know, you walked outside. Uh, you had to keep these people in control. Uh, uh, there were just a, every corner had a bar. Um, you had the, the Wolf Fat Restaurant. Uh, I, I believe it was Wolf Fat Restaurant, uh, Chinese restaurant there, uh, Kekoliki parking lot. Uh, we had maybe a handful of homeless people, and we called them bums. Uh, we didn't call them homeless or RCPs, you know, re- resident list, residentially challenged people, persons. Uh, they were bums. Uh, they, they drank the cheapest wine, Ripple, back then. Um, I talked to one guy. He said he was uh, one of the first atomic engineers in Honolulu. Um, and he just, it got to him and he left. And that's what he ended up being a whole uh, bum on the street. And I mean, these guys had like an inch of dirt caked on them. Um, but they, there was more respect. Um, it's interesting because across from the Chinese restaurant was the Glades nightclub. And it was, uh, the big show there was Boys Will Be Men. I mean, Boys Will Be Girls, I'm sorry. Uh, it was all transvestites, mahus. Um, on Fridays and Saturdays, Saturday nights, you could drive on Hotel Street back then. It was bumper to bumper traffic. I mean, we, we used to actually have to go out there and kind of like tap the tail of the, the car. Yeah, keep moving, keep moving. Uh, everybody turned out to show, see the uh, mahus because they were flamboyant. Uh, they were just driving through to watch them? Yeah, yeah just drove through That's to watch cool. them. Um, yeah, uh, so I mean, it was I, literally... Just from Hotel Street down to River Street, uh, Pauahi, back up Mauna Kea. It was just, uh, and fat, these people were families. They had gone out to see a football game or uh, you know some event, and then they drive through and see the glades. Hey, you know, what you do you do when you don't have the internet, right? Yeah, I mean, no internet, no nothing. That was your entertainment. Friday and Saturday, it was, you kind of dreaded working those nights. Um, but... It, it, the complexion of the the city was very different. Daytime, downtown was very businesslike. Nighttime, it just converted into this, you know, bars, sex shows. Uh, there were uh, the prostitutes. They used the upstairs of some of the uh, uh, establishments there. 
So, I mean, it was really a, a, a different time back then. I mean, it was still still very old, not, 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 nothing what you see today. And then, so we'd walk there, but then you might walk there one night, the next night you're in Waikiki. So <clears throat> back then when we walked downtown, you stared at somebody when, I, when they challenged you, you never broke that gaze. You broke that gaze. That was a sign of weakness. You're out. You lost. You know, these guys are going to step all over you. So uh, I remember one officer prior to us uh, hitting a road, walking past one of the uh, eateries there, and it was a gunshot. The, the, gun sh the bullet ended up grazing his leg as he walked past. So, I mean, you know, it, it was culturally, too, it was funny because you had a, the prostitutes never went past into the uh, Mahu's area. Um, there was a, a bar called Wonder Bar. It was a blacks, all blacks pretty much stayed there. Uh, so you never venture. Everybody had their own little thing, and nobody bothered anybody. Occasionally, you get the Friday night fights, but uh, it's like that all over the place. You still get the Friday night fights, and Everywhere, Saturday night yeah. fights. Yeah. But then, like I said, you'd walk downtown, uh, and then oh, and then the military, of course, was a big problem. These young sailors, these young uh, army uh, soldiers. Uh, they get, they come in, uh, get leave. They drink till they get stupid. They become victimized. Oh, uh, but we had the answer for them then. Uh, there was the Hawaii Armed Services Police (HASP). Um, if they, they would monitor our radio frequency, and when they heard the call, and come there, and you know, we're trying to talk to a drunk sailor. Got it, officer. Just grab the guy, throw him in a van, off they go. So it was solved. You know. The problems didn't take long to solve, and they didn't last long. On the other hand, once you walk town, if you had town that night, the next night you might be in Waikiki. Waikiki was entirely different back then. You had, the, uh, of course, the Sheraton was there. Um, it's been, I think they just celebrated their 50th anniversary, so they beat me by five years. Um, the Pink Palace was there. Um, they weren't that outrigger. Um, the jungle area back in the uh, where the Pacific Beach, further down towards us, wasn't developed yet. A lot of them were Quonset huts. Um, later, uh, a year or so later, when I be, uh, got assigned to Waikiki, uh, in fact, that, that whole assignment thing was funny because uh, back then, District 1 was from Kalihi, beat 20, all the way up to beat uh, 93 or 94 in Hawaii. So it was one big district. So, well, like back then, how many officers did the police department have here in Hawaii or Honolulu? You know, when I came in, that's when they started, um, they kind of started to rush guys through. Uh, I remember taking a test at Kaimaki Intermediate. Um, and I walked in, you know, I'm, you know, 18 years old, sit down, guy takes the stage, the monitor and says, congratulations, you guys made it to this point. Uh, there's over 2,000 applicants and we're only taking the top 10. So I'm sitting there going, Jesus. I, I, I'm not going to make it. But even the part of having 2,000 applicants, yeah. that's really, oh, yeah. that's a lot. Right. And that was only for police cadet. That wasn't even for the uh, police officer. Back then, we called the police cadet, they were police service officers one. And then the, uh, the uh, police officers were police service officers two. And then eventually you became a motorman. So it would be dash M. And you got $10 more for being a motorman. From the police officer one to police officer two was like $15 a so, month. So what was the role of a cadet? A cadet, we couldn't carry guns. So there was a federally funded program started in the 60s to encourage uh, it was men originally and then men and women. 
to come into law enforcement. So they, it's almost like you were on the job training. So you, you can't carry a gun till 20. You couldn't go to recruit school, although some did and they'd let them graduate depending how close you were to your 20th birthday. Um, so we were clerks. We would go out and do PR stuff, um, do the supply runs. Uh, I know at one prior to me, they would have uh, the cadets give uh, citations downtown until mm. uh, one guy got punched and they said, oh, well, we're not training them. We've got to bring them back in. And then they would book prisoners. The guy got punched again, so can't let them have contact with prisoners. So it ended up where we were clerks. Um, and when I started, it was $600 a month. Gee. So <laughs> I, it was good. I still remember my take home every two weeks was $171.12 after taxes and everything else. So wow, um, things have changed in just, just you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, less yeah. than half a century. But, you know, trying to get back. So, you know, you work town, you go to work Waikiki. It's day and night. You know, like I said, in downtown Honolulu, you stare these guys down. You really got to put your foot down. Mm. You're staring. And these guys never complained. You know, if, if you looked at them or if you got in a scuffle with them, they never complained. They didn't make, uh, didn't run to the police commission. They didn't run to, back then it was internal affairs. Never happened. Then you go to Waikiki and you got to uh, call everybody, sir, ma'am. Uh, you know, the, the tourists would always walk up to the policeman and say, where's the best place to eat? I loved it. I was 123 pounds back then. And I'm going, you're asking me what restaurant to eat at? But in the mainland, that's what you do. You ask policemen. They know. Yeah, for directions and yeah. stuff. Yeah. So uh, it was an entirely different ballgame. In fact, um, just to give you an idea, I kept a mustache on. Uh, when I came in, I didn't have it. I went to school, uh, recruit school. I didn't have it. When I got out on the road, that's when I grew the mustache. <laughs> because I, I went to a domestic at the uh, Waikiki, uh, the villas on uh, Alawai. And it was an old lady, it was a stereotypical domestic where you hear the crash of plates, the, the yelling of the you know, husband and wife. So I, you know, knock at the door, right? She answers the door, looks at me and goes, go call me a real policeman. I got kids all in <laughs> you, slams the door in my face and goes back to fighting with the husband. And I'm going, what do I do now? You know, I had to go and call a, another a policeman, real policeman. A real policeman. <laughs> but the guys were cool back then. You know, a motor patrol officer, senior guy comes there. Oh, he's laughing. We go up. And, you know, you walked in and you say, hey, you guys got to knock this off. You know, we didn't have social, um, any kind of social training or anything. You guys just got to stop. We didn't have any, you know, rules of arrest or anything. So, I mean, it, it stopped. It was, it was a different animal between their Waikiki and downtown. Very much different. Um, and then they started developing the east end of Waikiki uh, with the high rises come up, uh, mm. Pacific Beach and more all those. More and more tourists coming more in. More and more tourists coming in. So originally when, I think when I was there, it was really manageable and it wasn't gaudy. It was still a little bit of old Hawaiian, the uh, um, international marketplace. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. what a, it was fantastic. I mean, that old, they had the tree, they did the radio show from up in the, the treehouse, uh, the shops, they were there. A lot of them were trinkets. I mean, they were tourist trap stuff, but you know, something you would expect. Um, there was one beat in particular, 17 Alpha, and you stood in front of the uh, international marketplace. You were the information officer for the <laughs> night because everybody walked up to you. But I think Waikiki still had 
uh, an information officer, right? Standing at a podium. I know when I came in, they, they had the that. They were trying that Koban. Huh? Mid 2000s. Yeah, they were doing that Koban concept. Yeah, somebody got assigned to like the, yeah, the, yeah, the podium yeah. or yes, something like yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> like, they were trying to guy. do like what they do in Japan. So have mm-hmm. somebody there. Um, yeah, so, but I, I mean, I like that it's more community oriented. So, yeah, yeah. Know, it was a lot. Everybody was a lot closer back then. It was it, it was really a different era. Even the tourists, I think, you had a lot of returning tourists, so they knew where they where to go and what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they stayed at the Royal Hawaiian. Uh, you know, you had the different people stay different places, and you could tell. Um, well, yeah, I mean, these tourists, they had to, like, take a, a, a ship here. Yeah, yeah. There's no airplanes back yeah. then, right? Uh, <laughs> no, there were airplanes. Sorry. There were airplanes. Um, but, yeah, it, it, it was night and day between town and uh, Waikiki. And, yeah. uh, it, it, and, you know, the, the money, the attitudes of the people, uh, very respectful. Um, Friday, Saturday nights, again, like you said, you know, places like the Beef and Grog in Waikiki, uh, uh, the nightclubs, disco was still a big thing in the 70s, the later part of the 70s. So you had spats at the Hyatt Regency. You had uh, the point after further down uh, the street. I mean, all these clubs still run till 4 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, midnight watch, you were up all night. I mean, you never had a break. Uh, you had to keep going. There was no time to rest. Jeez. So, so it was more community-oriented and stuff like that as far as uh, the respect that's being shown from the police officers to the... I think it was yeah, it was both public. ways, yeah. yeah both ways. I mean, but but the police were much more respected. So you, you, I think you had a much higher authority back then yeah. than you do today. Today, everybody, they question you a lot. Well, you know, what do you know? What's your training? They've learned what the stars mean on the chest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you don't have a star. You know, and back then, we didn't have to put the stars on. It wasn't mandatory. But then they still look. If you had one, two, three stars, you know, you were somebody to be respected. Now they question everything you do. The, the problem is the media. And, you know, here's the other thing, too. Back then, the grand jury would meet once a week or once every other week. I forget what it was. But they would print all the people that they indicted in a newspaper and the mm. charge that went along with it. So, I mean, it was still small town kind of in a sense. Yeah. Um, the country districts were much different. I mean, there were only four districts back then compared to the eight we have today. So uh, country districts were much different. Guys would go there and stay there forever. Okay, so that was most of the, like, when you first got in in the 70s and stuff like right. that, going in the 80s. So yeah. what was the differences between that particular time when you first got in to uh, when you had maybe your first 10, 15 years in the department, like in the 80s? Yeah, I think, you know, you know the 80s, I spent 80s into the 90s. I spent quite a while in uh, the narcotics vice division. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into narcotics. I, originally, I went to the morals de- uh, detail for a few months, and then knowing that I was going to go to um, the uh, narcotics side of things, I ended up getting assigned to the airport. This is when we kind of saw the influx of drugs. Prior to this, there was cocaine in the clubs. Uh, everybody had their own little marijuana stash, but nobody got out of control. Uh, the cocaine was becoming an issue, but it wasn't a big problem. That's when the whole war on drugs really started in the in 80s. In the 80s, yes. But because now we started, we actually started to see an influx of larger and more amounts of drugs. I remember starting off, uh, I, we worked the uh, airport task force with the, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And, uh, you know, we'd get cases with ounces of 
um, cocaine um, pills, uh, marijuana here and there. I mean, mm -hmm. I think the biggest marijuana case we had at the airport was a 75-pound box of marijuana. Uh, and I remember it was a guy who was convicted of murder on a big island, and he was out doing this. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it, that influx of drugs really started to change things. Marijuana now became a very... Um, uh, how do I want to say it? A, a, a high-priced product. Mm. The further east it went on the United States, the higher the value. So you you were looking at maybe a pound of marijuana here. You know, guys, they might scrape a pound together, smoke it, big deal. As it started going to the mainland, it was thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand pounds uh, dollars a pound. And guys here began to realize, hey, we can make money. I don't have the uh, marijuana plant in my backyard for me and my friends to smoke anymore. I can go and create fields. Uh, Entrepreneurship. Yep. We start <laughs> exactly. And you know, I've always said drugs are the, the best example of the economy, supply and demand. Correct. Uh, it, it's exactly that because we saw the prices fluctuate. We saw the supply fluctuate. Uh, interesting. So, on Oahu, we had small patches of marijuana. We wouldn't get. We saw it in the cane fields. Uh, but it, it began to grow, and the use, of course, here grew. Uh, not only were they shipping it away, but there was more use here. Big Island, green harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, they were growing it um, by the, I, I want to say acre, it's not exactly true, but I mean, there were some large grow operations there. Again, because it, they were making money. Guys were making six and seven figure incomes of marijuana back in the 80s. Back in wow. the 80s. Uh, and then we started to see that, like I said, that big influx of cocaine. Remember now I said we'd catch guys, in, you know, because we were like the prime narcotic unit at the time. Uh, other guys in narcotics too, they, I mean, they'd work their way, long-term investigations, but we get ounces, rarely, rarely ever a pound. And then towards the, you get to the late 80s, um, 1984, um, the mid-80s, I should say, um, we started seeing pound cases and then kilo cases of cocaine coming in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it came in through all sorts of things. And, you know, got, everybody starts using it here. It was supply was high. The cost was relatively cheap. Everybody was using We started to see overdose deaths, and we never tracked those before. Later, we can talk about how the oxy problem led to us tracking overdose deaths. But back then, we, um, in one, there was a singer, Billy Cowie, with the Country Comfort, I believe, as a group. Uh, he died on the dance floor uh, from cocaine use. Uh, and his sister was our uh, time clerk in uh, the Narcotics Vice Division at that time, you know? Wow. But everybody. It's, it's a small island, yeah. Yeah. That's how we all knew somebody. I mean, yeah. everybody had a problem. And the police department just started to begin to. Uh, test the officers for uh, drug use. Oh, prior so to that, there was no? Prior to that, there was no drug testing. testing huh? Yeah. Uh, so this was the, the mid-80s when it started. Uh, and then towards the end of the 80s into the 90s, we start seeing the influx of um, the ice, Batu, mm -hmm. the methamphetamine, crystal methamphetamine. That just took off, and that created a lot of problems because now guys were really getting hooked. Uh, with the cocaine, ah, you know, so-so. But with the ice, you know, like some guys say, use it once and you're hooked. Yeah. So these, you know, it just, it took off exponentially. Um, now we were seizing multi-kilos of the drug at the smuggling points or even on the street. And so, 
it just deteriorated the family units. Yeah. So that's um, kind of what I wanted to ask yeah. on. Like, is the influx of drugs and the drugs during the 80s and into the 90s, is that one of the reasons, in your opinion, that a lot of the dynamic for society's outlook on how police treat Ooh, each other or treat the public yeah. and, and vice versa uh, kind of changed that dynamic kind of went away from just a community oriented police department more towards like us versus them. You could see a breakdown in the uh, social structure, I guess. Um, problems were happening at home because guys were going out to the disco. They'd come home. Um, they were carrying guns. Now uh, we never saw too many gun cases prior to that. Now in the eighties into the nineties, we start seeing gun ca- guys going to discos. Everybody's carrying a gun. Uh, you never had that many shootings. Uh, so, it, it, but it, it starts breaking down the whole fiber of the society because I want the drug. I don't care about my wife, my children. The demand is high. Yeah, yeah. So you see that breakdown, and mm. and what do we do as law enforcement? We we weren't trained to handle the social aspect of it. We enforced mm. the law. Yep. I mean, it was pretty black and white what we could and couldn't do. Uh, now you're getting children that are left at home while mom and dad are out drinking and doing drugs. So all of a sudden, hey, we got to take the children. Uh, we're calling you know, the Child Protective Service at 2 o'clock in the morning to come get these kids. So you see the fiber start breaking down and business starts booming. You see a growth in tourism. Um, downtown starts changing. Again, during the daytime, you got your business, your banking, everything mm-hmm. is pretty straight. Nighttime, it's becoming much more seedy. You, you're starting to have a deterioration where there were unwritten rules. You only went this far. You only went that far. Now there's a, the mixing. And then there's also the, the clash of the different uh, ethnic groups, the different uh, uh, violators. Uh, if you want to say that, you know, between prostitutes and Maui, there's no boundary anymore. Uh, it's starting to expand. It's starting to go to Ala Park. It's starting to go um, more. So, so you have an influx north. of drugs. Of uh, you have influx of these, uh, you know, highly addictive drugs that deteriorate someone's life. In addition to the uh, influx of population. Yes. Yes. Both. We start to see the population grow. Um, prior to that, I mean, you know, everybody still kind of knew everybody. It was still a bit of old away. Uh, I think in the 80s and the 90s, you really started to see that change. You started to see foreign investment come in. Mm. Um, you started to see more high rises. Um, That's you, like when the Japanese tourists really started to come. Yes, right? yes, yes. It was about that time period. And and you saw business. There was a lot of uh, Japanese uh, tourists came. They flew on Japanese planes. They rode Japanese buses. They stayed in Japanese hotels. So you had organized crime. Uh, I never mentioned this about the 70s and 80s, but or earlier part of the 80s. You had local organized crime, which made a lot of their money off gambling. But you make money quick and fast off gambling, but you make more money off drugs. So now you start seeing that. And it's the same like you hear about the mafia. You know, they never got delved into the drugs because it's too risky and all that. Well, organized crime went that way too. And even with the Japanese, we started seeing the Yakuza uh, have a pretty good presence in the 80s and 90s here in Hawaii. Um, the triads started coming in, the Chinese triads. Um, th- th- there, there were a lot of things that started to change and erode that fa- fiber of our community life, our family lives. So you saw less respect towards the policemen, and the policemen, 
Uh, and when I say policemen, I'm using that term generically. I'm not offending women or men. But police officers. Yeah. Yes. 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 Uh, uh, you know, it. There was just that erosion. People that became were pushing it more because of the drug use. I mean, right. you have to deal with more drunks. You dealt with more addicts, and and there were more people starting mm. to pervade live on a street not not nearly what we got now yeah it had to have been a, a drastic change in the homeless population because before in the 70s you were talking about like just bums just homeless bums mm-hmm. people that just didn't have a residence to live in and now mm-hmm. you know well not now but after that in the 90s you have these actual drug addicts mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. now the homeless population well, and then with with the building you actually see people getting pushed out because there's oh. nowhere to stay uh you know, the old places that they could rent and could afford no longer were there. So, you know, they're using drugs, they're drinking, they're out on the street. So you're seeing a little bit, but it's drug-related and it's um, alcohol-related. Oh, it's see. still it's still not so much of a social problem like how we see it now, where you see the mental, um, mentally challenged people, uh, people who are just resisting mm-hmm. to have living in a home or rules and it, all the other problems that come along with it. So the uh, 80s and 90s was a start there. Um, and, and it just progressed from there. But I, I guess I would call that the Middle Ages, even though it's right around the middle of my career as well. Uh, it's kind of the Middle Ages. You see you're, the transition. You're dating yourself when you call <laughs> the middle of your career the Middle Ages. Yeah. Um, you know, you started, you started to see a change, a yeah. uh, definite change. Uh, who was responsible? Well, a lot of people. I mean... Mm-hmm. The government let it go. Um, and I'm not trying to be political or anything, but, you know, there's an expansion. There's, it, it's good for business. It's good for the government. You, your tax revenue increases. Um, the police department kind of stayed stuck on that number um, for a long time because even the detectives, uh, in the 80s number of detectives was pretty current right up to not what it is now. Are you talking about the number of? The number of detectives assigned to either the, the districts or to the criminal investigation division. It's, it's still pretty much the same number. Uh, they you had, know, the population has, has, has constantly been growing. Right. While well, well, the population grew, the department never grew. See, early on what happened is when you built a house or you built a, a, a structure of some sort, you needed the police to stamp and sign off. Oh, wow. And then they said, no, we got to build faster. We got to build cheaper. Let's cut the police and fire department out of all this stuff. Let's cut the red tape. But what that did was when they did that, they were able to track things. Now the police, if I'm going to put up a big tower, they will send you their schematics. You take a look at it and you think of the impact that it's going to have and you submit your writing, your report on it. Does it have an impact on the um, uh, permit? Not at all. They, They issued a permit anyway. So it's almost useless to even make a comment on something like that. So, so if if somebody wanted to build a, a a condominium or something like that, like today you're you're doing these environmental impact studies right. and stuff like that. But you're saying back in those days, like there was a crime type there were, impact studies that there had were, been done before you did those. It got submitted to the police department. Oh. They would look where you were building, make sure that they had enough policemen in the area or police officers oh, in the area, okay. and they would stamp off before that. It was a way of controlling things in a sense because. If you started to build a whole subdivision, yep. hey, wait a minute, I need more officers. Right, right. I can't do it with the existing, so I can't sign off on this unless you promise to get us more officers. And that's kind of the way things worked. Um, some of the beats 
we're at it since then. But I mean, we're, we're looking at a bigger number of officers uh, today, authorized number of officers than what we had back then, but uh, not a whole lot. You still got, like I said, the detectives were kind of just frozen for this whole time. So, I mean, you got more, the caseload has changed over that time period. The type of crimes has changed. Definitely. Um, you know, because that, again, that, that fiber of society has eroded. Uh, and there's also more calls. You, you see, um, and again, it's not a comment on whether you're right or left, but that, that le left liberalism started, really started to pool on, okay, what do the police do? We need more help. Uh, you know, to, today, like I've seen, um, we need more psychologists. We need more social workers. The problem is that you can't respond to these homeless people who are mentally challenged because they're going to hit you, they're going to assault you, um, you know, they're going to do all kinds of things. You got, you still have to have the police officers do this kind of work. Well, we're moving towards that at this time period, but we're not quite there yet. You still got a lot of um, backing for the police officers, uh, but it's starting to deteriorate. Uh, it's just a time of change, I think, more than anything. And you can see it. The outside, the country districts are starting to get larger. Um, they're starting to break up. At that time, I believe Kalihi actually separated from what's known as Central Honolulu or District 1. So you started to get, I think you went to five districts. Uh, eventually, we'll go to six, seven, and eight. But it's all starting to happen around this time. Not only that, but you're starting to see... The, the evolution of community policing, mm -hmm. getting policemen to talk to people. And, you know, we had that prior. You had a community relations team, uh, div actually division, and you had the uh, police activities league. The officers were out there. Uh, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, you had thousands of kids that were involved. Now, again, you're getting into the 80s and 90s. Uh, you got less kids involved because that family structure is starting to break down. Yeah, and I remember hearing about um, people talking about, hey, we need to get back to the neighborhood police officer. Well, we need the neighborhoods first. Like, you can't just have a neighborhood police officer. I mean, a lot of these neighborhoods are transient. You know, you have people buying homes and moving out or mm -hmm. not owning the homes or not being invested in the neighborhood. You know, I have a neighborhood watch, nobody shows up. You know, I mean, how you have a neighborhood police officer if, you know, the neighborhood themselves aren't willing to respect the police officer and then you get the police officer to stay in that neighborhood and be invested in the neighborhood too right, right. It, it, it's difficult because just like you said we don't have that neighborhood we got transients um as, it, at this time you still don't have the vacation rentals yeah. uh, there's a few because i think the moratorium stopped in 86 bed and breakfast um so you had a few but the residents were there with the visitors when so they, they kept them under control you never had problems mm -hmm. Um, it's not until after the 2000s you really start seeing that transition where criminals start attacking, people start buying houses. Uh, I remember having a guy come into the Kailua station grumbling about it, the way his neighbors treated him because he converted his home from a single-family rental, uh, you know, long-term rental, to a vacation rental. And he was driving a tourist nuts. And then um, we saw criminals actually start targeting these places mm -hmm. i had one guy tell me he knew how to go to the back door and uh, the back gate and actually lift the latch so that he could get in and then he'd watch the first day to, uh, that the people were there he'd hit them because they had the most to steal okay so that was the 80s 
seventies. Uh, we started in the seventies, and then we did the eighties, and a little bit in the nineties. And so, how has or how have you seen the big transition between policing from you know from your early on in your career through um, how it was over the past you know decade here, two thousand ten and beyond? You know, I'm I'm going to go back into the nineties, into the two thousands. You started to see a change where you see groups of individuals um for example when i was a detective in waikiki at that time uh, i always said i had a why problem why and i and why manalo mm. because my suspects were coming from there uh, you, you started to see serial type crimes purse snatchings robberies they become a little bit more prevalent and now they're targeting certain groups they're targeting tourists they're targeting the elderly um, as we move up into the 2010s and so now you start seeing scams becoming more and more prevalent as well. Um, we talked about the internet before, no internet, so you drove past the glades downtown on Hotel Street. Now with the advent of the internet, you got more and more crime taking place at home, on the internet. Um, victims, uh, especially elderly women, are becoming victimized. So you, you see that again. Just uh, over the weekend, I got a call an elderly woman fell to a romance scam. She lost $150,000, and they're asking me, what do I do? I mean, what, do you, what can you do? Uh, money's gone. You sent it away. Yeah, it's, you, it's you sent that money away. There's ways. I mean, we did it with Secret Service when I was a lieutenant in CID where we looked at things, but now you got all of this. You also have the advent of plastic credit cards. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the 70s, you had uh, revolving credit, store credit, so those cards were very limited, and identity theft never existed back then. 80s, uh, it starts a little. You see the change. 90s into the 2000s, yeah. That's hugely uh, prevalent now. Yeah, yeah. and, and you, you got groups that are taking, uh, again, not no uh, racist intent, but these groups tended to organize around ethnic, uh, racial, um, their common ground. So you had uh, black groups coming out of uh, New York, Las Vegas, um, those places. You got Chinese coming in from mainland China. Uh, they get American student visas and uh, go to work doing uh, crimes like that. You had people coming up from uh, um, South America, Central America. So you had different groups. You had the Vietnamese, the Chinese, uh, a whole bunch of groups. Uh, even as recently as just a few years ago, uh, Japan, which is a very conservative country in a sense, uh, didn't know how this happened. Uh, the Nigerians started, uh, you know, victimizing their banks. And it's like, you got to explain to me, how does this happen? I don't know how I can, mm. you know, picture this. But, you know, all that plastic. So you, you, there's a much more, drugs are still prevalent. Methamphetamine is still a major problem. But then now you can see there's other ways to make cash, fast ways to make cash, credit cards, scams. Um, and, and, and local guys, they take part in this kind of stuff. So you see that change again uh and again you're starting to get a separation in the classes as far as who's doing what uh and more white collar crime taking place uh, the lady in you know where you never saw it happen in the 70s 80s maybe even 90s now the office manager is stealing a hundred two hundred thousand dollars from her boss um you, know, you just see more it's become more and more common that you see these people indicted for this kind of thing why there's money there and then what do they do they it's a lot of it is pleasure uh, they're not some you know run that gambling habit we've had guys that have stolen millions to go to vegas and um but there's other guys 
you know, take the girlfriend out, leave the wife at home, spend New Year's Eve at Times Square, uh, you know, just lay out the box because it's not mine. So there's no value in the money anymore. So, again, t- we talked about that fiber, that family, the family unit, mm-hmm. it's just kind of breaking down in that sense because the value of things and, you know, you're on your own, get out of here. As long as I got my six pack or I got my ice that I can smoke, yeah, everything's good. So how is the societal's um, outlook on uh, police officers changed? Like how do how do you, how have you, you know, seen that people uh, their what to call um, their perception of police officers changed? I think the advent of media, social media. Uh, first, the media at first you had. Well, uh, say you got CNN doing 24-hour news, then they're joined by Fox. So people are watching and getting more and more information. Hey, that's not right. And, you know, they can't tell the whole story. They got 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes to tell a story. So you don't get all the facts in there. So people are left to draw their own conclusions. That's racist. That's sexist. That's, you know, uh, you're a pedophile or whatever. And not all the facts are there. So... There's all this prejudgment, and then policemen are put on trial uh, with shootings, with uh, their behavior, this pressure to release the information. I've never been one. I I like to be as transparent as possible, but what good does it do to release a police officer's name if he's gotten suspended for something? You actually, now you've, you've got him becoming a target. Oh, I saw your name in a paper. I saw your name in a legislative report. Uh, you're, you're a wife beater or something like that. Uh, and this guy already paid dearly administratively with a suspension, in some cases, you know, termination, and then having been brought back on a grievance procedure. So, you know, this all, the, I, I think social media, because so, people just, uh, I attended a conference a few years ago where um, uh, well-known journalist, old-time journalist was there. And he said back in the 60s, 70s, when he first became a journalist, you have to you have, you have to verify everything. He goes, not, today, anybody with a computer is a journalist. They go on and they say anything they want, and people read it and believe it. It's God's truth. Yeah, yeah millions of people believe in it and seeing it and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And, and that, that's kind of destroyed that uh, respect or that the influence, and they call them influencers, right? Uh, I mean, we had we had some uh, publicity with some during the pandemic where they were influencing, you know, their influences, they were traveling internationally to come here and just violating all the rules. And it's like, what, what you know, you're taking away more and more of the police officer's power and respect in that sense. The, the, the court rulings have, have just eroded um, what the police can and cannot do. And, and it hurts the public. It's not the police that get hurt. It's the public because uh, the police officer can no longer do this. Uh, and, and all because the court ruled that, you know, we violated the vi- poor victim's rights. Well, what, I mean, uh, suspect's rights. What about the victim? Society is the victim here. Uh, we've, they've, the courts have just expanded uh, their decision-making. And granted, some police officers now uh, we've had a lot of no, uh, cases of notoriety where they, they've been caught lying or uh, caught doing di- different things. A lot of them have been you know, terminated, fired. Uh, but that's not a reflection on all the police officers. But these court rulings affect all of the police officers, what you can and cannot do. And society is the loser for that because right. what you're doing is you're just watering down uh, 
what and, and and the criminals know it. I'm sure you've had criminals tell you, "Hey, what, what are you gonna do?" I mean, uh, I I've had uh, people tell me, you know, go ahead, call the cops. They don't do nothing. You know, so uh, this that you know again, and I I think a lot of it is the pressure on the police officers to do more with less. Um, you know, the caseloads now that the patrol officers and the detectives have is just unmanageable. You can't. Uh, there's, there's no way humanly possible that you can get through all these things and take care of things. Uh, why? Because we never kept up. There, there used to be a rule of thumb, and I, I can't. I want to say it's about three thousand, four thousand, or five thousand, something like that. I, I can't remember what it is of the population for every policeman you have mm-hmm. or police officer. And I, I think we lost that. We really watered it down, so we we don't have enough because you know. Even if it's a thousand to one, you got or ten thousand to one, we're yeah, still below. Yeah. yeah, you know, you got all these people calling to make complaints, and you got one policeman to answer that. So it, it's it, we never kept up with that. We let the pol- politics got away from us. Uh, the funding got away from us. It went to other sources, uh, and, and it's not that police are the primary, but you think of government's role. Uh, it's to protect. You know, one of the major roles of any government mm-hmm. is to protect the property and the lives of the people within that area. Um, I mean, we got a, we got an infrastructure and all that, that that's definitely needed. But, you know, if you're not safe, uh, you know, your house is not safe when you're gone. Yeah. Well, what good, good does it do? So I wanted to ask this question before we um, close out here. Uh, why or what is your big why on why you wanted to become a police officer and why you stayed you know okay good question i was 18 at the time when i took the test uh, i was heavily involved in a uh, police activities leave my father worked for the police department at the time and i, I you know I'll, t- I'll take the test and like i told you i was there 2000 guys he says we're only taking 10 i was too embarrassed to walk out of the uh, cafeteria so i stayed and took the test uh, I scored number three out of the, uh, all the candidates, and they rushed us through really fast. So um, I found it interesting. I, I liked the camar- uh, camaraderie um, right through most of my career. But as the higher you went up, the worse it got in a sense because uh, you became more and more of a target, more and more of somebody that, you know, you, put, you pour your heart and soul into it, and you're criticized to death for doing everything wrong. And yet what you did was right. Um, the reason I stayed, especially I was an investigator most of the time, uh, we tried new things. Uh, we went after elderly financial uh, criminals, people who were praying off the elderly. We got to go after them. And I remember one case that we went and did. Uh, we brought the victim who had Alzheimer's into the courtroom to testify. And she was a darling. The court loved her. The defense couldn't break her. The media loved her. They even interviewed her later. Uh, prior to that, if they had a mental illness, the prosecutors never touched those cases because they said, oh, she could have said that they had permission. Well, if she's mentally incapacitated, she can't say yes or no. So greatest victim you got. Um, started getting into cybercrime because nobody was doing it. Uh, along with the elderly, one thing that really pushed me that way was I saw a man come in trying to represent a woman who was being victimized by her granddaughter. And she, he had everything. He explained it to the desk sergeant. And the desk sergeant told him, you don't have a case. You got nothing. You know, uh, I walked outside and told me, let, me, let me see what you got. And you got a case. 
Uh, but just moving that way into the bringing back white collar crime, bringing back, um, you know, the, the fraud, the internet stuff was just fascinating. We actually uh, were able to sting the Nigerians for millions of dollars uh, working with the Secret Service. And you know, today it's more important than anything to work with all these agencies: Secret Service, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security. Um, the Naval Criminal Investigation, all, all these guys. Uh, it's just so important to work together with them because you, you pool your resources that way and, and you get a better result. You're servicing the public. Um, I think one of the big things I want, always wanted to say was the satisfaction of helping somebody and moving in that new direction was, was really important to me. So what kind of advice would you give to someone that is possibly seeking um, to join a police department, any police department nationwide uh, today in this day and age? It's going to be challenging, but it's going to change. Um, you have to come in knowing what's going on out there. I think uh, your greatest asset is your mind, uh, knowing what to do, knowing the rules, knowing the laws, knowing the policies, um, knowing the crooks and how the crooks operate, that, that thin blue line. Um, you've really got to get into that stuff. and it, It's the greatest job in the world. Um, and I think we need, we need leaders that are going to come back and, and bring that respect back to us. Uh, you know, the, the police officers nationwide. You have some that are really trying. Um, you have others that are complete failures. So, I mean, it, it's, it's a difficult thing, and it's not only happening in police work. You see it in other industries, but I, I think the leadership really has to step it up. All right. Uh, any last words for our audience here before I close out here? No, thank you very much for having me today. Um, no, it's been great. Great it's experience. It's a great history lesson going through, you know, from the 70s, 80s, 90s into today. You know, it's... Uh, you know, just from my eyes, you know, things in society have changed so much. You know, just, what, 11, 12 years ago, we didn't have iPhones. Right. You know, right. there was no smartphones. And now everybody and their children has smartphones. They're not phones. They're computers. They're little computers in yeah. your pockets. You yeah. know, so just in that one aspect, yeah. you can see how much society has yeah. changed yeah. and how much dependent we've become on technology. Well, that translates into all these other industries, too. You know, mm -hmm. police officer, mm -hmm. law enforcement uh, included. And so, the, the crooks, it gives them another tool. Yeah, there's always that caveat, too. It's like it's a double-edged sword with technology. Yeah. It's more easily accessible, but it's also you're more easily, you know, scammed. And, you know, you, we, I think, see that now with yeah. cryptocurrency yeah. and the crimes yeah. that go on with cryptocurrency. It's like, yeah. oh, boy, yeah. and it's a whole other realm. But, you know, it, it, going back to your question, the police officers need to be smarter. Um, so, I mean, it's taking more... When I first started, it was the brawn that counted, the big guys, you know, bust them up, beat them up, no problem. Now you get, you've got to be smarter. You've got to think fast. You've got to think on your feet. You've got to, all these, the internet and all these things that are, you know, uh, what is an IP address? What, how, what's computer fraud as opposed to computer damage or computer unauthorized mm -hmm. access? All these things that, um, and you have to be social workers with the current, um, uh, homeless problem. I mean, there's pressure on the police officers, but you know, I still think it's a very honorable job. I don't think people should be uh, necessarily uh, pushed away from it because of what's happening. The leadership has to really stand up, and um, they got to stand up for their officers and, and and gain that respect back. We need to gain the respect of the public back, and the way to do it is by doing your job and doing it right. All right. 
Really good and awesome having you on, sir. Thank you so much for taking time out well, of your thank evening. You. Come down. Thank you. Enjoying retirement. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Only two weeks. So. Okay. All right. Everybody Hawaii Real, John McCarthy. Thank you very much. Yeah. And as always, stay happy Hawaii.